Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. During this challenging time, Emiko has launched a variety of new ways to spread some joy while we are all working from home, starting with a brand new way to shop boutiques. Online, they are bringing in-store pieces directly to you at home. Pieces will rotate weekly and be offered at a huge 20% discount. Also, check out the hashtag Yumiko at Home giveaway, where they will be raffling off one free piece every Friday. Rules apply, so be sure to go follow them on Instagram at Yumiko for all the details and a chance to win. Additional ready-to-wear and collection items will launch throughout the month of May, so stay connected at yumiko.com and at Yumiko on Instagram. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today we are joined by Phil Chan, a co-founder of Final Bow for Yellowface. Phil is a graduate of Carleton College and an alumnus of the Ailey School, and is now an arts administrator and educator. Phil was the founding general manager of the Buck Hill Skytop Music Festival and was the general manager for Armitage Gone Dance and Youth America Grand Prix. He served multiple years on the National Endowment for the Arts Dance Panel and the Jaden Wong Award Panel presented by the Asian American Arts Alliance and is on the advisory committee for the Parsons Dance Company. In 2017, he teamed up with New York City Ballet dancer and friend of the pod, Georgina Pascogan, to found Final Bow for Yellowface. Phil tells us about how this initiative came about, what work he is currently doing as part of this organization, and tells us about his new book, Final Bow for Yellowface Dancing Between Intention and Impact. You can access Phil's ebook online at yellowface.org. Thank you so much for joining us today, Phil. Uh, we really appreciate having you on the show via Zoom. 
our new best friend. Pleasure. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, let's just get started. Um, you never intended to be the driving force behind a campaign to end Yellowface in ballet. Um, can you tell us about how this first became something that you were not only passionate about, but that you had the tools to begin to confront? Yeah. So, um, you know, being an Asian American in ballet, um, of course, I've I've seen a lot of how we represented Asians throughout my life. And growing up, I just thought, oh, that's just how it is. It's tradition. Everybody's doing it. So it can't be wrong. Um, And like, it doesn't feel great. But like, look at all these other beautiful, wonderful things about ballet that I love that speak to me that speak to who I am as a person as an artist. Um, And so, you know, like nothing's perfect, you know, like mm-hmm. that's fine. I, I, there's right. so much more that I love that I want to be a part of this community. Um, and then you just keep seeing it and seeing it and seeing it and like no other alternatives um, in terms of how Asian people are represented. So I think the first time I really um, was thinking more along these lines was um, I've been on an advisor for the Asian American Arts Alliance. So mm-hmm. as part of that, I'm on a, a panel, um, the J.D. Wong panel that gives away a choreographic prize uh, or a prize to a choreographer every year of Asian descent. So uh, looking at that award and realizing how few Asian voices there are making dance work in classical ballet um, and then seeing how Asians are represented on stage in this like caricatured way, mm-hmm. um, just putting those two things together made me realize that there probably is more that we can do as a community to improve Asian representation. Um, but then it really sort of hit home for me when I went to see a production of um, Ratmansky's recreation of, of his Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. And as a dance history buff, I was like so excited to see it. And like I'm going in and it's just like, these spectacular costumes and you know when it when it premiered originally it was called uh, sleeping beauty or the triumph of the art of sewing and <laughs> this production like it was, was was you know no different and and then in the third act you know there's these like storybook characters and this like you know shinwazerie couple comes out and it just like it felt really weird to like see that that here we are like Asian people in the audience in the 21st century. And we're still going back to what Europeans thought Asian people looked like mm-hmm. 100, 150 years ago with like no questions asked about that. Right. So it didn't really feel right to me. And then um, I, I, this is sort of the start of, of the book, but I, I had a conversation with uh, Ratmansky actually and kind of explaining um, the overall dynamic of like, what is it like being um, a minority person in this majority art form that, uh, is less equitable and less positively representative than than we could be. Um, and I, I at the time I didn't really get it fully either. I didn't quite have the vocabulary to talk about it, um, and, and so it just sort of it was sort of a one one thing. And then and then uh, I'm good friends with Georgina Pascogan, who's a soloist at New York City Ballet, and um, she was also on the awards panel for the J.D. Long Award and. Um, she happens to be on a diversity committee at New York City Ballet. And, and in that meeting, one of the things that came up was um, the Chinese Diversmont and the Nutcracker. And Gina said, well, you know, uh, if, if you think all these other issues are pro- a problem, let's talk about Chinese. And, and Peter Martin said, yes, we've, we've actually, the company's gotten thousands of letters um, over the years wow. um, and more and more every year complaining about how uncomfortable it's making our audiences. And um, so Gina spoke up and said, well, you should talk to my friend, Phil, he's of Chinese descent. Um, he, he's a trained Chinese dancer, but also trained in ballet. He knows, you know, Balanchine's Nutcracker very well, um, and might be a good resource. So 
uh, in that meeting, um, which I, you know, kind of outlined in the book as well, which was uh, kind of the first time I've put it into words, which was mm-hmm. kind of exciting for me. Um, but leaving that meeting where Peter said, hey, I'm willing to, to you know, change the costuming, the makeup and the choreography to be a little bit more respectful. Um, I left that meeting and I called Gina and I said, holy shit, I think Peter Martins is going to change the Nutcracker. Mm-hmm. Um, huh. And if Peter Martins is willing to do it, you know, who's one of the most conservative dance um torchbearers and, and conservative mm-hmm. i don't mean like politically conservative right. I mean like with a commitment to history and conserving sure. history mm-hmm. if he's willing to change and is open to having this conversation why not every other ballet company in the country mm-hmm. um and then so we started thinking about how we could could make this positive change and you know at the time both of us had busy full-time jobs so it's not like we could call every dance company every small dance studio around america and say hey what you guys are doing is racist cut it out um, we really needed a way to create a domino effect um, mm-hmm. and, and, and create kind of a larger movement with minimal effort on our part because, you know, we're busy mm-hmm. people. Um, sure. So the, the idea of the Yellowface pledge came about. Um, and so we bought yellowface.org for $10, um, <laughs> put the pledge up there. And we, we wanted to be more than just um, like a call out culture kind of a, an outlet mm-hmm. um, because that, calling somebody out never helps them learn. It doesn't help them grow and it doesn't really make things better. It just points out when things are wrong or uncomfortable. So instead our focus was trying to be on education of saying, okay, this is, this is an uncomfortable problem. Here are some constructive solutions Mm -hmm. that that might help you. If you're navigating this conversation, you might not have a diversity expert um, on on staff or you might be in a small town without um, people of color that you can rely on to Mm -hmm. kind of ask some of these complicated questions. So um, we really started wanting to be a resource and that's kind of how the, Mm -hmm. the conversation started. And then it has sort of snowballed from there and, um, at this point, every major, almost every major American ballet company has signed the pledge, uh, and it's spreading across the world faster than coronavirus. So, um, <laughs> we, we are, we're optimistic that, uh, you know, we, we are doing better as a community, but there's still quite a ways to go for us. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but this is a good first step, I think. Mm-hmm. Something that I love in the book, and I think, um, is certainly like a really important um, way that you're able to um, get people on your side is that you have a super measured um, sort of even keeled approach to to it. You don't, you know, it's not like you said, call out culture. You're just, you're not going to get people on your side by using charge language. I mean, especially, you know, nobody likes being called racist, even if that's what, you know, even if they're perpetuating racist behavior, you have to, to explain um, what makes it inappropriate or why people would feel insecure seeing their culture represented so tastelessly or offensively. Um, yeah. well, I so, think it's, it's also when you're, when you call someone racist, mm-hmm. um, you know, they might hear that and say, well, I'm not racist. I lived in Japan for four years. My cousin's oh, black. Stuff. I love yeah. Mexican food. So, so <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't see myself as racist. So therefore, anything you have to say following that comment about me being racist, I'm going to disregard and stop listening because that's not, that's not what my experience is with myself in terms Mm -hmm. of how I see race. And so it's not a really constructive way to point out these things. It's Mm -hmm. better. um, And and the the subtitle of my book is dancing between intention and impact. Mm -hmm. And so it really thinking about it that way of saying to an artist, Hey, I know your intention 
was to make this fun, playful musical Chinese dance. But the impact of that dance on people like me is cringeworthy. It makes us feel really uncomfortable. It makes us feel like we don't belong. It's really Mm -hmm. an ugly representation of our culture. Is that what you intended? And when you Mm -hmm. phrase it that way, no artist would say, oh, that's, I I wouldn't want people to misinterpret my work. That's not what I meant to say. How can we fix that? And so it Mm -hmm. it becomes a starter for a positive and constructive conversation, as opposed to shutting it down and, Mm -hmm. you know, resisting. And, um, And I think we see a little bit of that with with what's happening with this conversation in Russia, mm-hmm. you know, and, and kind of the blackface conversation around Bayadere. You know, if we say, hey, you guys, cut, out, cut it out. Blackface is racist. All of you guys in Russia are racist. They then hold on to it tighter and they say, no, no, this is our tradition. You guys are the ones who had slaves. You guys, you know, we're not racist. You're racist, you know. And so and then they don't they don't think and then they don't progress and then they don't grow from and they don't care to try to do better because. Right. You know, they just have dismissed us as overly politically correct Americans. Right, right, right. right. You know, so yeah. um, there, it's even how you have that conversation has been something that we've grappled with in order to get the tone just right, in order to be efficient with our message. Right. Yeah. Before we go on, I just want to talk about your book really quickly because we're going to reference it a lot in this conversation. So tell us a little bit about how you decided to bring all of these thoughts, this initiative into this book and tell us the name of it, where we can find it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the book is called Final Bow for Yellow Face, Dancing Between Intention and Impact. Um, I wrote it in about 10 weeks uh, over wow. the Nutcracker season. So that was mm-hmm. like my wow. November and December. Um, I finished it on Chinese New Year. So like early February uh, <laughs> this year. Um that's awesome. It's it's currently you can you can pick it up at yellowface.org slash book. Uh, I'm, it's an ebook right now, but I'm working on a print uh, paperback version. I'm actually getting the final draft from my page designer today, so oh I'm very God. excited about that. Um, but I, I I decided to release it pretty much as soon as I finished it, just because the quarantine was hitting and the coronavirus was spreading, and mm-hmm. we also saw a spike in anti Asian um, sentiment around oh. the world. And yes. mm-hmm. this was this is sort of. Um, pushing back against that in my small way. And it felt mm-hmm. super timely and important for me to release it even, you know, just as an ebook um, as soon as mm-hmm. possible. So um, yeah, it's uh, I, I wanted to write this book because I couldn't talk to everybody about this conversation. I can't, I can't reach every person who means well and wants to absorb this information. So mm-hmm. a book is a way to, in a very, um, low-key way you can read it at your own pace in the safety of your own home without getting to um having to have a conversation where you might be defensive or uncomfortable it's it's really um kind of low uh low impact um Mm -hmm. but i also wanted to outline a series of best practices for our industry of saying like hey we have this repertory in our work i i don't want to lose works like Bayadere, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, or the Mikado or, you know, you know, Madama Butterfly, all of these works from the Western canon that are kind of problematic, but mm-hmm. still have a lot of artistic merit and value. So how do we save it um, while not saving the racist parts? And that I think is a big question that a lot of arts organizations are really struggling to answer. So I thought that by writing a book and outlining this for people, um, it would make it very accessible. So even the smallest arts organization can spare a couple of bucks to buy my book and really think about this in a much bigger way. Um, so that's kind of the impetus of, kind of why I needed to put it down into, into words. Yeah. That do, you, do you think there are any works that are just flat out unsalvageable? Oh my gosh, so many. And I, I talk about that in the <laughs> book. Um, you know, it's uh, 
the the one the one example that I, I talk about in the book specifically is Thoroughly Modern Millie. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's a really beloved American musical, um, but there's this character of Mrs. Mears who's like this, you know, uh, sort of pseudo Chinese woman who uh, kidnaps young white girls and puts them into white slavery in the Orient, which is like like not historically true. Like feeds on yellow peril unnecessarily. Like it's just like. Um, and, and so I was working with uh, New York City Center on the revival of Millie that was supposed to premiere um, this month. Um, and in talking about it with the, the director, um, we were talking about how, what, how do you save a character like Mears? Do you make her Asian? Do you make her, how do you change that dynamic? And what came out of the conversations and, and you know, Lauren Yee, who's a playwright, um, Asian American playwright was helping to retool this. And Lear and, and um, the director and, and Lauren came up with the idea that, you know, that the only reason she's Asian is because she's supposed to be weird and exotic, but there's nothing, there's nothing about her that like as a character that mm-hmm. which, why she has to be Asian. The, yeah. Sure. So, yeah. So, so they just said, okay, well now it's going to be Mr. Mears and it's going to be played by Taylor Mac, which was, I was so <laughs> looking forward to that. <laughs> that's um, so, but, oh. but you know, like that's, that's a situation where like, yeah, sometimes it's just not salvageable. Um, I, I, I think one of, you know, I'm, I'm not Japanese, so I can't speak to, to that. But I think one work that has that dynamic is Bukaku. Um, I was going to bring that up repertory. because, yeah, um, I, I don't know if it's going to be done ever again. And I don't know how it could be. Yeah. What yeah, do you I don't, do? I don't know. I was thinking, so, like, like, do you do it as a leotard ballet? Like, I don't know. Like, you know, and then the stylized movement, like what, what level? Because you talk about in the book um, when you go work with, Valley West on Chanta Rosanal, like that's like you were, you have to analyze so many different components. It's not just like pointy fingers, you know, there's like levels there of how they're costumed, how their makeup is and what the actual movement is. Um, but with Bugaku, it's like, I want, you know, you'd have to have a, a Japanese person come in and speak to their experience, but I don't know well, that so, it's, I mean, yeah, I, I I don't know if there's a way to do that, and I think maybe the way to save Bukaku is I, I like the idea of making it a leotard ballet and kind of stripping away the Japanese-ness altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, you could hire Japanese costume designers and mm-hmm. um, you know have it redone that way. You could um, ha- hire Japanese dancers and Japanese choreographers and then have a conversation around it. But mm-hmm. I think Bukaku mm-hmm. is one of those works that. Um, you can maybe present it in a museum setting. So maybe right. it's at MoMA. Um, it's It has an Asian-American panel before and after, mm-hmm. and it's just that one ballet, and it's more like a scholarly discussion about history mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, hey, we're doing a great season of Balanchine's Greatest Hits, and we've got, you know, Bugaku next to Stars and Stripes, and it's right. all good and fun, you know? It's, it's that kind of context, which I think is also um, important. So if you are screening... Um, uh, Bugaku as a film, uh-huh. include include a conversation beforehand with Asian Americans talking about mm-hmm. their experience and why it's a problematic dynamic, and then show the film mm-hmm. of the of the you know archival performance. I think that's the way to, I guess, save these works in some way so they aren't right. lost mm-hmm. completely. But um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I just don't know how Bugaku can be done in a right. way that doesn't feel gross in, right. in today's culture. So right. Yeah, I mean, it still has other problematic issues with like how sort of patriarchal it is. Like, so it means basically, you know, like so, so the way that the that Padada is just like submissive Asian woman with the strong samurai esque man. 
that's that's like, an issue. Oh, I'm so exhausting. Like so, I'm so tired of that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was. Um, can, I mean, can you guys think of Asian American choreographers who've made work for a major ballet company? No, I mean it's just I can. It's really it's hard enough to think of a non-white male. Yeah, I've like got Ma Kong. Ma Kong, who's the the resident choreographer at Tulsa Ballet. I've mm-hmm. got Ed Liang. Who's oh, Ed Liang. Ed Liang. I was thinking of that. Yeah. Um, at, at, at City Ballet and at, at Ballet Met. And then also Chu Sang-Go, who passed um, too soon, uh, but he was the resident choreographer for Washington Ballet and really a, a leading voice. But then I think he passed away of, I believe, AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are like the only three Asian American choreographers I can think of that have made a work for a classical company, you know, besides Shen Wei and other dance artists, contemporary dance artists. I mean, mm-hmm. classical ballet, those are the only three I can think of. Mm-hmm. And so when we see the dynamic of Asians represented, everything from Bayadere to Bugaku to all of these things, we have Asian representation on stage, but it's not from an Asian person's point of view. And I right. think that's the biggest problematic thing. It's like, mm-hmm. until we have more Asian voices telling our stories, maybe give Bukaku a rest for a while and give some oxygen for an Asian choreographer. Right. Yeah. yeah. I like that um, concept of creating context surrounding something like Bugaku because there is this, like you talk about, there is this, does, people will use this opportunity to say, well, there it's part of history. It's historical. You know, that's an excuse that's used. So what are some of the other things that you can think of that you, or ways that you can create context surrounding some of these historical things that we want yeah. to uh, preserve in some ways, but also create context surrounding it? So, um, you know, this, Final Bow for Yellowface work has been a lot of advocacy um, and has taken time away from my own creative practice as an artist, which I think structural racism has a tendency to do that. If you're an artist of color, not only do you have to make your own work, um, but you have to devote a lot of your time and resources to fighting racism that maybe as a white artist, you might not have to ever consider, or, you know, right. you, you, get, right. you just get to make a, a ballet as a white person, as opposed mm-hmm. to having to point out something racist, work a little harder, and then make the ballet. So right. um, part of my creative practice is um, I'm working with Doug Fullington, who's a dance notation nice. scholar out of Pacific Northwest Ballet. And we're looking at the Orientalist repertory in the ballet mm-hmm. um, canon. And we're figuring out ways of how do we present this old work in a new way that fits America. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at, um, I think, I'd say Bayadere is our, our furthest along, but we're working on a new production of Bayadere uh, I've got a couple international companies who are interested in co-producing it. Um, but as you know, it's like, you know, classical ballets are three to $5 million and up right. yeah. to produce. So this is like you no know, small feat, especially right now. Right. But um, our Bayadere takes place in 1930s Hollywood. Uh, it all takes place on a Hollywood set. So instead of like a hoochie coochie Indian temple, it's like a film crew. Mm. Um, How cool. And so instead, uh, so if you think of like Singing in the Rain, like Nakia mm-hmm. is Debbie Reynolds, Solar mm-hmm. is Gene Kelly, and Lena Lamont is Gamzadi. So good. Um, and <laughs> it, it, it makes the story about us as Americans, as opposed to them, those right, imaginary right, right. Indian people over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and But we're the goal for us and the challenge, like the game that we're playing is like, mm-hmm. you have to keep the choreography. So we have to stick to the notations, but how do we mm-hmm. tell the story in a new way right. that keeps the choreography. So we're not trying to do like a Matthew Bourne Swan Lake. Mm-hmm. It's still going to be Petty Paws by Adair. Right. But instead of by Adair's with veils, 
they're going to be cowgirls with lassos because they're mm-hmm. filming a western, a country mm-hmm. western picture. Uh-huh. And so we're able to keep the dances, but give it a new setting so that it makes it about us. So right. that's one way to do it. Um, we're, we're also exploring a version of Corsair that takes place at a beauty pageant. Because what else, like, you know, where else do we trade women and and treat them as slaves, objectify (laughs) them in our, in our society today? So there's going to be gangsters instead of pirates. There's going to be beauty Mm -hmm. queens who, you know, and and that's, but, but still keeping the Corsair choreography Mm -hmm. just without the like dopey Orientalist tribes. And that's a way to make, make that American. And I think that's our responsibility is to make it for our audience. We're not. Um, imperial European mm-hmm. society, so our art mm-hmm. cannot look like that. Reflect that, yeah, that, yeah. I just, I, I'm really interested in this project. So, what? Who else are you kind of working with? Are you working with costume designers? What are like? What other yeah. kind of elements come into this? Yeah, we. So we've been. Um, I, I've been writing the libretto. We've been comparing notes. We've been going back to the old score. He's actually um, Doug is a musical genius. So he's mm-hmm. taking the Minkus sort of beer hall tunes that make up by air. And since it's taking place during the jazz age in America, he's going to sneak in a few American instruments, like the vibraphone and the banjo, okay. you know, and like give it a little swing rhythm. So it's not just like, give it a little American swagger, you know, like make it about us. So Carla Corbis, who's a amazing ballerina from Pacific Northwest ballet is working with us to coach the ballet. She has a, strong commitment to the Russian heritage, to that really classical training, mm-hmm. but also is forward thinking and American in her approach. So again, finding these people who have that commitment to history, that respect, uh, and, and the ownership of that as our dance heritage, but then also who are forward thinking enough to see where to take it into the 21st century for America today. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's, we're, you know, we're talking to see who, who some fun American designers would be that would, mm-hmm. that would, help tell this story, but we're focusing on having diverse collaborators, American collaborators, and really making this uniquely American art that Europeans could never even do it this way because it's not about them. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love that. Something that I think you um, talk about really clearly and, um, you know, it brings up such a good point in the book is that um, our, our definitions of tradition and what's historical are actually a lot of the time pretty skewed. You know, I think so many people really go see Swan Lake and they think that they they are seeing, you know, 1890s Imperial Swan Lake. But I mean, there's just so much in there that is maybe not even 50 years old. You know, it's like things that we, the concept of the white swan, black swan, that didn't really solidify until mid-century, you know. Um, And if anyone, you know, Danilova wore a red tutu, as the black swan. And if someone came out and did that now, you know, maybe it would be sacrilege, but so there's a lack of understanding there. So um, I just think that was was so great to point that out and to say like, well, then if we make these changes along the way, like why can't we just make changes that will accommodate a portion of your audience? I mean, it's really for the whole audience. If you think about it, every performance is different. That's sort of the the bargain we made with the devil mm-hmm. as performing artists. Mm-hmm. Is like mm-hmm. we aren't we aren't talking about sculpture. We're not talking about photography. We're not talking about film. We're not talking about painting. These are static works of art mm-hmm. that are a reflection of the zeitgeist of the movement, the moment. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, when they were made. 
Whereas theater, dance, opera, music, it's it's alive only when we all gather together and make it alive together mm -hmm. with living people today. Um, so our art has to be more immediate and more um, reflective of our audiences and our, our time and our culture. Um, that's part of the fun, but also uh, sometimes some of the frustration of dance. So if you look at dance, I mean, legs have gotten higher, tutus have gotten shorter, men have been allowed on stage, women have been al allowed on stage, you know, like for a while only men could dance, for a while only mm -hmm. women could dance, you know, and mm -hmm. we're, so we're changing all the time. And so the question is like, well, if we're changing some things, why can't we change how we deal with race? Right. Right. I find that interesting because like you mentioned, seeing Ratmansky's Sleeping Beauty was kind of one of the things that initiated these thoughts for you and this uh, movement. I can imagine that that so he very much prides himself in creating a newer version, but really sticking to that history. So I like how you're challenging that in a way that we can stick to the history of the steps and the music and the movement, but we can make these alterations. And so do you feel like that scene a like you're saying a living breathing thing that's happening happening right in front of you can be challenging to kind of contextualize like this is an old ballet this is a new ballet do you feel like i don't know what the question is here maybe i don't have a question i'm just going along with like it really is so cool to me that you're using this movement to show us that we can honor our history and make it current and that's been something that people have just Ben, it's so easy to just say, like, we can't do that. It's impossible. Well, I think it's it's hard to do this work because we are not good at talking about race as a community. We have not been challenged to talk about race. Um, and people are scared of saying something wrong or offending people um, that they might not want to speak up. And it's easier to just not talk about it mm -hmm. than to talk about it. Um, and and But unfortunately, when you have that dynamic, you're not able to be creative. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're worried about offending right. people or walking on eggshells, you're not going to think of the most innovative idea. So mm -hmm. an example of this is um, Peter Bull at Pacific Northwest Valley. I'm, I'm a big fan of PMB. Um, <laughs> he, he called me and, and this is sort of the end of the, the Nutcracker section in my book, but he called me and said, hey, I, I have this idea for um, the, the Balanchine Nutcracker Chinese. And I'm sort of playing with this idea. Can I run it by you? Promise you won't laugh. And um, But his idea is instead of a coolie, who looks like somebody who built the railroads in the 1840s. Um, mm. Like, why are we still having that image of Chineseness? Instead of that, he said, what if it's a Chinese cricket? And so these two girls, they wheel out a box. And what's in the box? What's in the box? It's a fun game. What's in the box? <gasps> it's our pet cricket. And he's jumping. <laughs> Look at how high he can jump. And crickets ah. are the most musical animal in Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. They're a symbol of good luck and fertility and spring and life and joy. And so that's a perfect symbol mm -hmm. to appropriate from Chinese culture. And you don't have to change the choreography. You can even mm -hmm. keep the fingers because they're kind of like little antennas, you know? Like, mm -hmm. And it's it makes sense because it's like, here are these two Chinese girls and they have their pet cricket and they're sort of like both afraid of their cricket because it's like a bug, yeah. but also right. they love their cricket because it's their pet. <laughs> and so it makes it makes sense That's with the so choreography. Cute. It's specific. Mm -hmm. and, and so if you're a young yeah. Asian dancer and you see that dance, you go, oh, I want to be the cricket. That sounds right. fun. Mm -hmm. I, there are no young Asian dancers who say, oh, yes, please. I'm dying Chinese. to be the coolie. 
Oof. Right. Like, I just like, no, why would I want to do that? No. I mean, and it's something that celebrates the culture, like you're saying, right. that has right. a positive. The Asian boys in Miami City Ballet always ended up in Chinese. I mean, because they had the right technical capabilities for it. But I, I know, I mean, they've told me that the, like they hated it and it could feel demeaning. But, but I think that that's, that does happen. And I think it's, it's, there's a power imbalance where dancers don't always feel like they can speak up to their directors because it affects casting, promotions, uh, touring. And so, um, yes, just because you have Asian people in the room going along with it doesn't mean it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of people think, oh, diversity just means, well, look, we have a black person in the company now. We have an Asian person in the company. Check mark, we're done. Diversity, mm-hmm. we're done. Mission accomplished. And it's like, that's really literally just the first step. Mm-hmm. That's literally just the very the very least you can do is to have a person of color in the room, um, right. and then you know the next step is like questioning what we're doing and what the structure is, and and that's when it gets hard. Right, and I think that's where we're at with a lot of American ballet companies right now. Mm-hmm. They think they've they think they've mission accomplished, but we're like right. we're just starting, guys. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and even just like checking off that one box, it's like what a burden to that person to be representative of an entire group of people. I mean, it's just, uh, I thought about this a lot with Pete Buttigieg <laughs> because, you know, it's like he, he took a lot of heat for, you know, not being the right type of gay. And, but I, and, you know, I don't personally relate to him. I think we've had very different experiences as gay people, but that is, that's the whole thing. That's why it's hard to have, you know, like pick one Asian person to come in and speak for all of, you know, an entire continent. Like it just, you, you need it. It's more than just having the one person and, and checking off the box. But I like how far we have come that gay people don't have to like Pete. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's nice when you see, more Asians on TV and you don't have to like them just because they're Asian. Like right. you don't have to, to like Margaret Cho just because mm-hmm. she's the only Asian oh, person on television. I did love I mean, Margaret you know what Cho, I mean? Though. I mean, I adore <laughs> Margaret Cho, but I'm saying, like, I'm saying you don't have, you don't have to, right. like mm-hmm. that's no longer like, you know, something that you, you're, you're only person you can identify with and you mm-hmm. have to like that person. It's yeah. funny so. to think back on those things and like almost just like how, brazen it was of her to just think that she could be an Asian woman leading a sitcom. Like, you know what I mean? Or when you go back and you look at like, I mean, the only like Will and Grace was the only gay representation that I had. And just like, you don't realize the bravery that it takes. I'm sure that that was a huge feat, like at at the time that it must've been really difficult to, to mount that. Oh, sure. Are there any other works, ballets, like you're saying, even um, stage productions that you would like to work on um, and kind of revamp in the way that you're working with Doug Fullington? What are some of your other goals? Um, So, I mean, like literally all of the Orientalist repertory is Mm -hmm. on my my radar. (laughs) Um, Think about Raimondo. What is Raimondo about? Nothing. It's about a, and no, well, it, it's about it is about something. Yeah, it's about a it's about a girl who has to choose between um, falling in love and marrying the man who's from her culture, mm. or this outsider who comes in and <laughs> he's mysterious, he's um, glamorous, exotic, attractive, mm. but ultimately she 
has to choose the person from her own culture and the other person is rejected. Mm. I mean, it's a ballet about xenophobia and look at what's happening in America right now. <laughs> you know, like, why can't we tell that story? I mean, it's, it's the same as like, guess who's coming to dinner? You know, with right, right. it's, it's the same story as Raimonda. So why can't we do Raimonda like guess who's coming to dinner and make it American? I mean, Scheherazade, so much fun. I love the music. It's probably oh, one of my favorite score. pieces of classical music. So it's beautiful. amazing. It just gives me like tingles every time. Yeah. <laughs> like what else could it be? Does it have to be, you know, the Sultana flings open the gates of the harem and the, the golden Negro comes out and they have this big orgy and then she kills herself at the foot of her husband because she dared love you know, this, mm -hmm. this brown slave. And you know, like, it, mm -hmm. is there a way to celebrate the music that do, like, doesn't have to be that way? Mm -hmm. Right. I, I think, I think Scheherazade might be one that needs a complete mm -hmm. revamp. Right. Um, yeah. But, Can we talk about the, the difference here between like exoticizing a culture and, um, I, th I think that some people feel like they can get away with that a little bit more. If you're not directly sending up a culture like by representing them as like you know silly um coolie type popping out of a box with pointy fingers like it, it might feel like oh but like look she's a beautiful brown slave and you know there is like an appeal here what's what's harmful about that even though it's not directly um you know laughing at a culture yeah i i had a i was in conversation with um northern ballet in um in Leeds in, in the UK, and uh, they pr they premiered a new ballet this year called Geisha, mm -hmm. and it was an all white creative team who wanted to tell the story of these two Japanese women, and one of them is ceremoniously raped, like as part of a ceremony, and the other one is just raped. So, like both female characters, both female leads are just raped uh, in the story. <laughs> I didn't see it, but this was in the review. And um, and in talking with the company, they didn't see why that was problematic. They said, well, we, we did this ballet in conjunction with all of the Asian dancers in our company. The two leads were, were of Asian descent. Uh, so how could this be racist? Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's for me, it was like you're perpetuating a singular idea of what Asian women are like. Mm -hmm you're asking the Asian women in your company to be complicit in that. And you did not care to have the experiences of Asian collaborators to tell the story in their own way that you felt that you um, could tell the story better in your way. Mm -hmm. I, I told them like, why not pick something like a Merlin ballet, like pick something from your own culture, from you know, and, and like, yeah. you know, like if you're not, if you don't want to include people from that culture, then mm -hmm. work on what you know. Um, and so I, I, I guarantee you that if you told a Japanese person to make a ballet about geishas, it would be wildly different than your Occidental mm -hmm. fantasy of what right. geishas are like. Right. Mm -hmm. I also think that it's interesting. I mean, firstly, I'm sure that those girls probably were uncomfortable, but as we all know, ballet dancers, just we don't, you, you don't, it's very hard to find a voice because you can be replaced, your career is so short, a lot of reasons. But also saying like oh they you know we had them involved in it so it must be fine it it's it made me think of what you were saying when you were young and you were like sort of just accepting of um okay like that's just how asian people are treated in ballet and like 
you know, you kind of go along with it. Like in a way, just because you are a part of a, an ethnic minority or any minority doesn't mean that you don't sort of absorb some of these um, ideas about your own culture. Like if you're not actually working, uh, you know, to, to, to push yourself outside the box, you can buy into some of the, own, the things that people are saying about your culture or your orientation or your gender. Like think about women that don't support women. That's a very common thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching Mrs. America with Phyllis Schlafly. It's really dark. Um, anyway, but yeah, so it's like, even if those, I'm sure that those girls probably did feel uncomfortable, but even if they did not, it's not like a ringing endorsement. It doesn't mean that other people were just a-okay with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so so one of those things is um, as part of Asian Pacific Heritage Month this month, uh, Gene and I have interviewed a dancer of Asian descent and um, every single day, and we've released mm-hmm. an interview every single day. So if you head over to our Instagram page, you can see all of these interviews. Um, and what is emerging is this tapestry of experiences that um, often feel invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we don't often think about the Asian experience in ballet, and I think that that's because um, we're already at least in the room, even if not fully at the table, whereas right. people who are darker than us are still not even able to join mm-hmm. companies. So, um, you know, that that experience, I mean, a heartbreaking moment with Jeffrey Sirio, where he's talking about his experience in dancing Chinese Nutcracker. And as a kid, and he said, as they're painting my face with a mustache, I knew it was wrong. Like, I, I just knew that this mm-hmm. wasn't right. But like, what what, am, what what can I do? Right. Um, and I think that that is is so common um, for for Asian dancers. So um, I think part of our responsibility in doing better is also to make sure that people who are darker than us and who have fewer uh, opportunities also get a place at the table. So this mm-hmm. work is largely Asian advocacy, but also um, we support you know black dancers, Latinx dancers, and want to make mm-hmm. sure that they're included and represented equally positively. Um, mm. Middle Eastern dancers, especially when we talk about Arabian, but our focus has been strictly on Chinese and Asianness, at least in mm. the Nutcracker, because um, it's a really good case study to show how to look at other races. Right. And um, we can speak from our experience, but if you follow our logic, you can apply it to any other other group um, and still come to a similar conclusion about how to move forward. So, mm-hmm. right. I wanted to bring up. Um, another point you make in the book that I thought was really great. Um, Cause I, I had heard things at different points, you know, an argument being uh, leveraged as to why certain things are okay um, to do, which is, Oh, well, like if you, you know, we, we did, well, we did Nutcracker in South Korea and they didn't care. Like they aren't offended by Chinese, the Chinese dance, but your point in the book that I think is, um, really resounds is that it's not about that because when you are part of a majority right you know south korea um you know there there isn't an otherness in being asian in south korea so when you see someone kind of doing some weird little misinterpretation of your your culture you're, it just it doesn't it doesn't sting the same way as it doesn't if, even register you're right. like oh it's a clown or it's like a silly like a silly person mm-hmm. whereas that same ugly trope to an Asian American who's been called a chink, who has their eyes pulled at them, you mm-hmm. know, who might be discriminated against. Yeah, it does sting. Whereas like you go to China and you call a Chinese person a chink in China, they'd be like, I don't, I don't get that. Like what's, yeah. okay, cool. Like I don't <laughs> understand that at all. It does not even compute. Right. Um, but it, it would be deeply harmful to, to an Asian American. 
So right. mm-hmm. that, that is that is a difference, you know. So uh, just because Asian people don't aren't offended in Asia doesn't mean it's okay here for Asian Americans in America. Right. Right. What are some of your future goals for this initiative um, that you and Gina have going on the final bow for yellow face? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's spreading around the world right now, which is great. A lot of our conversation so far has been focused on representation on stage, meaning how Asians are represented on stage. Um, the next step and the sort of flip side of that coin is um, how are Asians represented off stage? Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, uh, the Dance Magazine nomination platform came out a couple couple days ago, and I was just just curious. I looked through, and out of um, 360 Dance Magazine awards given out since 1954, only three have gone to Asians. That's less than one wow. percent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, when we talk about Asian representation, it's not just take out the coolie, take off the Fu Manchu, and mm-hmm. stop bobbing and shuffling. It's how do we get more Asian choreographers? How do we get mm-hmm. more Asian students? How do we get more Asian board members? How do we get more Asian faculty? Because that's when ballet survives. It'll, mm-hmm. it, it will die without a diverse coalition of people bringing ballet into the 21st century. If mm-hmm. it remains something for elite white people, it will become like a Civil War reenactment, like a curiosity, mm-hmm. but not art that can actually touch people or that it's relevant in any way. Do you feel like some of these initiatives by taking, you know, doing this work with, let's just use Chinese and and nutcrackers, we've been talking about it a lot, by changing it to something like that cricket could make a young dancer in the audience, an Asian American dancer, be like, I want to do that. I can do that, as opposed to maybe feeling like it seems alienating. So maybe that is starting to kind of then moving the ball forward. Well, I would just, I would ask Ballet West to see if they had an uptick in Asian American students auditioning for their Nutcracker after they presented Le Chant de Rossignol in such a respectful way. Mm-hmm. They really engaged the Asian American community. They invited them into the studios and yeah, then they brought their kids. I mean, I went to, I went to see the show and there were so many more Asian people than I would normally see for like a Swan Lake or a Giselle right. Uh, right. because they said, oh, these are people who care about us and who are trying to to do this in a respectful way and I'm curious and I want to learn. Yeah. Right. If, if you fall in love with it there, you'll, you'll, you'll try out for Nutcracker, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks later. So, right. well, I just think, I mean, everything you're doing is so wonderful and I, I look forward to hopefully a world where ballet does have a diverse coalition of people, you know, it's for too long, especially living in New York city, you know, which is one of the most diverse cities I think in America um, to not have that reflected on stage, but then just as you say, off stage as well, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, uh, an arts organization has to be representative of the community it's serving. So let's, and, and let's I think hope we, that we do, we do see that in, in, on the West coast, for example, like yes. Seattle, San Francisco do much better than they do in Miami, where the, the population in Miami is 2% Asian American. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I mean, Miami City Ballet doesn't have the same pressure to get this right that San Francisco Ballet does. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they should. Just for your integrity, right? I mean, it's like like what you were saying in Russia. They don't have, you know, that's always the defense. Like, well, we just literally don't have an African-American population. So we don't. So we can do blackface. We can do blackface. No one cares. (laughs) But that's not not true. You know, Mm -hmm. like that's that's not the way to to move forward with the art. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Thank you so much, Phil. This has been so wonderful and so fascinating. And we wish you Everyone all the luck with it. Everyone should download the book. I, I, yeah. I read it in one sitting because it's great. And it's just, uh, <laughs> I think you, you just communicate, you're such a good communicator. And that's what makes you, I think, a, a perfect advocate. Like it, it, you know, I never, you never feel like you're being judged or uh, yelled at. And that's exactly what you were saying before. It's like, you, that's how you have to get it across. Yeah. Well, thank you, Michael. I'm really Great. glad you enjoyed it. Um, I hope everyone it. picks it up and, and uh, here's to a more inclusive American ballet for the rest of the 21st century. Cheers to that. <laughs> thank you for joining us this week. If you would like to support the Conversations on Dance podcast, there are a few ways that you can help. Click over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Download episodes when you listen to allow our analytics to better understand our listenership. Join our Facebook group, Conversations on Dance, Friends of the Pod, or you can offer a donation. Conversations on Dance has always been and will always be free to our listeners. You can help us continue to create and produce this unique behind-the-curtain look at the dance world by visiting conversationsondancepod.com support. Thank you for tuning in. See you next week. 